A few years before I was born, Truman Davis began this quest. A hundred physicians followed in his path, and those who found the cross found it a sobering and real event. We all stand in a long line of believers who join Paul in the pursuit of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The apostle went a step further when he wrote, and I quote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The gospel writers won't help us much on the details of the Lord's crucifixion, nor will they offer their unique insight into the process of scourging, probably because these things were common in their time, and perhaps they assumed their readers knew what it meant. In biblical terms, we have but a few concise words from Pilate. His actions, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. It has been written that the first known practice of crucifixion was conducted by the Persians. Alexander and his generals brought it back to the Mediterranean world, to Egypt, and then to Carthage. History and a few texts point to the Romans learning the practice from the Carthaginians. Rome is said to have developed a very high degree of efficiency and skill at the pain and suffering of the crucifixion. A number of Roman authors, including Tacitus, commented on crucifixion. Several innovations and modifications, as it were, occurred in the ancient literature. For instance... The upright portion of the cross, or stipes, could have the cross arm, or patabulum, attached two or three feet below its top, in what we commonly know as the, the Latin cross. But the most common cross used in the Lord's day for crucifixion was the Tau cross. It was shaped much like our capital T. This shape does not match the crosses we see on signs or someone's necklace or a lapel. Many of the painters and most of the sculptures of the crucifixion show the nails through the palms. But historically written Roman accounts established that the nails were driven between the small bones of the wrist, the radial and ulna, and not the palms. Nails driven through the palms would strip out between the fingers if they were to support the weight of the human body. The misconception may have come through a misunderstanding of what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, Behold my hands. Anatomists, both modern and ancient, have always considered the wrist as part of the hand. As I stand here tonight, I'm gripped by the suffering of the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Passover Lamb. And there are reasons for us to be grateful. There are reasons for our tears and sobriety. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was far more than what I'm able or willing to present in this small moment with you. As you gather to listen in, just know that what Jesus did on the cross was far more important 
than anyone could ever describe. Know this. Every virus known to mankind, this one, all the past, and all that may come. In fact, the cumulative infections of all the world pale to the damage and pain that sin caused humanity. Jesus came to save us from sin. He came to die, be a ransom for our, for our salvation and to free us from the debt that we could not pay. He was the Passover lamb. The physical trauma of Jesus began even before he was taken by the temple guards. He began in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. His suffering was seen in prayer with what the Bible calls great drops of blood. Among the disciples, there was one single physician, Luke. And Luke is the only one who makes mention of the Lord's blood sweat. And I quote, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematohydrosis or hythrosis or bloody sweat is well documented. Hemohydrosis, hematohydrosis, is a rare condition in which a human being sweats blood. People have written about it. Even Leonardo da Vinci once described a soldier who was sweating blood before battle, filled with such anguish and panic. Luke records the same of Jesus. Under great emotional duress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing with sweat. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock, great drops of blood. One writer said, The Lord's realization of the gruesome events to come sent his physical frame into panic. He was but a few hours from the most ghastly death anyone could die. As it were, great drops of blood falling down. After the rest, in the midnight hour, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the high priest. A soldier struck the Lord across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunting him to identify them as they each passed by. They spat on him. They struck him in the face. In the early morning, Jesus, now battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia. Jesus is taken from place to place, Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. I'm moving ahead now. So much has happened in one single evening. He's back finally on the pavement now, waiting for the final order of the highest authority among them. It was there. In response to the cries of the mob, Pilate orders the release of Barabbas, a very well-known and convicted murderer. They all knew him. In contrast, to satisfy the maddening crowd, Pilate orders the scourging and then crucifixion of the innocent man, Jesus Christ the righteous. It was a well-played scene. Experts in torture and pain step onto their stage. The preparation for the scourging begins. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing, his hands tied to a post above his head. 
The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum in his hand. A flagrum. A short whip consisting of several heavy leather strips with metal attached to the ends of each one. The heavy whip is brought down with full force across the shoulders and back of Jesus Christ, perhaps even his legs. They would often wrap itself, themselves, around his torso. At first, the heavy pieces cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the tissue, producing blood from the veins, and finally, arterial bleeding from vessels and the underlining muscles. The scourging of Jesus Christ does more than just cause broken blood vessels. They invoke deep bruises levied into the muscle tissue itself. That knowledge alone gives acclaim to the prophet Isaiah, who many years prior wrote, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This Passover lamb took every physical disease on his body. But he also took every mental and emotional wound as well. He was wounded and he was bruised. Jesus did not leave any part out of our healing, out of our day. He became the Passover lamb. Whatever disease we might have, his stripes were given. Whatever emotional scars, bruising, stains deeper than the eye can see or what people can know, his stripes were given. Every outward physical suffering and every internal hidden suffering was considered by this, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. He was the fulfillment of the countless lambs that first led the children out of Israel, out of Egypt rather. They sacrificed a lamb and its blood. They put the blood on the doorpost of their home. They ate the innocent lamb inside. And the blood and the lamb covered them from the final curse Jesus did the same for the whole world, for us, for you on Calvary, for me. His suffering was not a passing glance by the Bible writers. Bible writers, they, they did not give much information. Perhaps they might have even looked away from such descriptions of their own making as just a whisper, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. The soldier, however, is not done. The whip lay heavy on the frail frame of this Passover lamb. Finally, the skin of the Lord's back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is just near death, he orders the beatings to stop. Rome knew how to make suffering last. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement. Even the word pavement has significance. It is the same word used to describe the place where Rizba interceded for her deceased sons. It meant judgment. On the pavement called judgment, the blood of the Passover lamb was spilled. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be the king. Having played the game of kings, I'm, I'm sure they wrap him in a garment made like a royal robe and then place a stick in his hand as it were a scepter. Someone among them reaches for the flexible branches of the acacia tree with its long and sharp thorns. The same wood once covered with gold 
was made into the Ark of the Covenant, it now finds its way on the head of our Lord. The skilled soldier weaves the branches into a tight circle signifying a crown. They press it on the Lord's brow, his head, capping off the image of this Jewish king called Jesus. Thorns were the curse of Adam, his curse. The earth would bring forth thorns instead of fruit and vegetables. Thorns represented the damage done through disobedience, the ground. It was meant for food, but sin brought about thorns. Thorns also marked the path of Abraham as he went to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. They cut his ankles and his feet. They were meant to discourage Abraham's upward movement of obedience. To do what God required meant for him to wade through the thorns. But on that day, Jesus, your Jesus, my Jesus, this Jesus took the thorns in his brow, every thought, whether a lie or discouragement or condemnation or self-condemnation or any other, it was laid on his head. This Passover lamb paid it all. As the songwriter once wrote, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. And again, there is copious bleeding, profuse and profound. The scalp being one of the most vascular areas in the body. They pound the crown of thorns deep into his brow. After mocking him and striking him repeatedly, his face becomes disfigured so that he is unrecognizable. Humanity has left his image. As Isaiah would prophesy, as many were astonished or appalled at the His visage was so marred more than any man, Isaiah wrote, and his form more than the sons of men. He did not even look normal, not like a man. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport, and the robe is torn from his back. But the cloth has become adherent to the clots of blood and the serum in the wounds. They rip it from his back, and the removal of it, it's like removing a surgical bandage causing excruciating pain, almost as as though he were being whipped again, opening the wounds again, and he bleeds. The condemned man is now forced to carry his own tool of death. He carries the transom, the cross. While the weight might vary from 80 pounds to 110 pounds, we do not know. The body of Jesus could not sustain it, and he stumbles on. The heavy transom is tied across his shoulders and the procession of this Passover lamb begins a slow journey through the indignant crowd. He stumbles, perhaps he falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into his lacerated skin and the muscles on his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have a limit and his has been pushed beyond their endurance. This cross most likely has been used before. It was an instrument of death. Far different than the gold and silver smooth surfaces that are displayed all across our world. It was more than just an emblem. It was a symbol of judgment and shame and suffering. Now Jesus needs help and the soldiers know it. His strength spills along the cobble streets of Jerusalem. So they force another man to carry the beam to the front of an intersection before the place they called the Hill of Skulls. An unsuspecting worshiper named Simon 
of Cyrene has come to celebrate the Passover. He hails from the northern tip of Africa. He's traveled a long way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Little does he know that this day he will help assist the Passover lamb make the final journey to pay the final price for his sin. At the foot of the hill where people come and go, Jesus is thrust to the ground. The legionnaire goes to work, feeling for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood to secure it. Quickly, he moves to the other side. He repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some movement. The beam is then lifted into place at the top of the post. There's an inscription that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. There is some debate on the placement of the nails in his feet, either in front, at top, or to the sides. I've seen an ancient display in Israel a few years ago that featured nails through the sides of a feet. Wherever they might have been, wherever his feet were nailed, it was meant to give him just enough leverage to hoist his body upward as he gasped for air. With each movement, Jesus will release the fluid filling his lungs, ripping his back again and again. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail or nails in his hands and his feet. The searing agony of those nails all give attention to the innocence of this Passover lamb. He dies for you and me. He suffers for you and me. Medical doctors have described the effects of such things on the human body as the arms fatigue, muscle cramps, knotting them in deep, relentless throbbing pain. The cramping muscles soon makes it impossible for the Lord to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but he is struggling to exhale. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to give in one short breath and then exhale. Finally, finally, carbon dioxide builds up in his lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in his life-giving oxygen. But it's almost over now. The loss of fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into his tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. Dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasped his fifth cry, I thirst. Psalmist said, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. In prophetic form, the psalmist writes, And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. A sponge soaked in pasca, the cheap sour wine. It was the staple of the Roman soldier. They had it all over the place. It's lifted to his lips. He rejects it. He turns away. The medical community has written it in full. Hours of this limitless suffering, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as the tissue is torn from his lacerated frame. He must move up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing sensation occurs in his chest as the... As the pain moves through his body, 
slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The sins of mankind lay heavy on the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. He can feel the, feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. And then one last surge of strength. Once again he presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes in one last deep breath, and he utters his seventh and his last final cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. His head hangs, and there is a departure of this Emmanuel. The spirit has left the body. The overshadowing of the Holy Spirit in the life of a young girl named Mary, the dual nature of Jesus Christ, has now fully been divided. The spirit moves past, and the body dies. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, some soldier steps forward. He drives his lance through the fifth interspace between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. It's then and there that we see the evidence that the Lord did not die of the usual death by suffocation. But when blood and water came forth, it was clear that he died, literally, of heart failure. Jesus died from a broken heart. So when we take communion tonight, we must remember that all of that was done for us because of us, with us in mind, with me in mind, because of me. When we receive communion tonight, we have to remember at least a small fraction of his suffering. If we cannot know it all, we have to come to grips that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That no one was born righteous. That there is none good, no, not one. That only the cross of Calvary could save us. That only the blood of Jesus can redeem us. That only the blood of Jesus can pick us up from a life of sin. We were destined to die. But Jesus, the Passover lamb, climbed up on a wooden cross and he gave his life a ransom for many. He died. His blood, the atoning blood, it washes white as snow. There's nothing like the blood. The sin lays heavy in the world today has an answer. It's a remedy. It's greater than any vaccine. It's greater than any medication. It's the spotless blood of the spotless lamb. You were not redeemed with silver and gold. You were redeemed with tradition, received from your fathers. But we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. A lamb without blemish and without spot. That's where we are tonight. To remember the Passover is critical for us. I'll say this again as I have so many times, but the word Easter is only found one time in the scripture. It always referred to the Passover, but we have moved from the Passover to some form, some new form, some non-biblical form of of Easter. Easter is not about chocolate and candy and all that's fine, but it's really giving reference to the Passover when 
Israel needed a way out and the only way out was to escape death. A lamb had to be killed. Blood had to be shed. Lamb had to be offered. Their lives had to be covered. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they reenacted the same thing, the Passover, over and over again. How ironic that they were all celebrating the Passover, observing the time of the Passover, when the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, was killed. Even John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And now tonight, we pause, we give recognition to how we came about. We didn't come about because of our religious heritage. None of us are saved because we were good enough. There were no merits. There's no generational salvation ever mentioned in the Bible. Nobody's saved because their parents were saved. No one's saved because they had good grandparents. No one is saved because they went to church. We're only saved and redeemed because of the blood of the Lamb. The spotless blood of the Lamb of God. When I remember the blood, when I take the cup, I must remember that the blood saved me and covered me and that the lamb died for me and that his body was torn that his body was broken for me and it was broken for you tonight it ought not be unusual though our location might speak of such tonight we simply remember the Lord's death until he comes I want you to pray with me as we prepare to receive communion. So wherever you are, would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? Would you find reverence? And wherever you are, would you do that right now with me? Now, Father, we stand here tonight, wherever we are, wherever the people are. We call on you, Lord. You have helped us. You've led us this far. That no amount of world conflict or trouble will ever separate us from this moment. No pandemic will ever cause us to forget how we have come to be. Instead, Lord, we're honoring your death until you come. And if you come in these tumultuous times, let it be said that there were people on this Wednesday evening honoring your death. We're remembering your suffering and your shame. And I pray tonight, Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sins. Clean us and wash us. Creating us a clean heart. Purge us. Renew us, Lord. Help our hearts to be right with you as we prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the cup. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would receive our efforts, Lord, as meager as they are, Lord. Consider your people. We are of most frail entities. Forgive us of arrogance. Forgive us of pride. Forgive us of our outward actions and the things that we say. 
Forgive us, Lord, of our own ego. Forgive us of the things that we have set before you or in front of you, blocking ourselves from you. Forgive us of our worldly ambitions, Lord. Forgive our nation. Forgive our country. Forgive our land, Lord, on all the corruption. Forgive us as a church, Lord, as we enjoy the things that corrupted this world. Forgive us. Help us to be focused on you, I pray. Help us to take no pleasure in the things of this world. I pray, Lord, that our priorities and our lives would shift. Let it be you, Lord. Let us remember you. Let us seek to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as the whole world, Lord, the whole religious world, relishes in the power of your resurrection, and we will all relish that in a few days, help us not to forget the fellowship of your sufferings. Help us to be conformable unto your death, Lord, I pray. So that in the end, we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. We want to be resurrected also. So I pray tonight. Help us to remember and to be thankful for your suffering and for the price that you paid on Calvary. And we give you praise and glory and honor. Might and power be unto you, Lord. Holy Lamb of God. Holy Lamb of God. Thank you. If you'll help me for a moment. And if you're in your homes tonight and you have a cup and some form of a cracker or bread to receive communion, I'd like for you to prepare yourselves now for that. Thank you. I'm reading from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is an ordinance for all the church to keep. This is the remembrance of the Lord's broken body. We can scarcely know the level of his pain. But when we take the bread tonight, I want you to imagine... that the suffering has ended and a few men now retrieve his body they begged for the body from Pilate Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the Bible says they begged for his body they wanted his body perhaps there's no fluid left in him no blood, no water. He doesn't look like the same Jesus they once knew. Paul will write, and in his writing, he gives credence that Jesus spoke to him. That's why in some of your Bibles, you'll note that these letters are in red, signifying that Jesus spoke these directly to Paul. Paul said, 
For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do ye in remembrance of me. And we take the bread. carrying his body down whatever rocks that were beneath that cross could not hide the blood that was spilled from him and Paul writes again after the same manner Also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup, Jesus said this, This is the New Testament in my blood. Do this, and as often as ye drink it, remember me. For as often as ye eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And we take the cup. Wherever you are, would you lift up your voices and your hands and your hearts to God? Would you call on Jesus right now? Would you give him praise and thanks? Would you thank him for his sacrifice? For his body? For the shame that he took on Calvary?